People of God, let us pray together and ask for God's blessing of the preaching of his word. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We thank you that you have called us here, that you have forgiven us, and that you have opened up our eyes to hear. Lord, may we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, and may we glorify you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've had an opportunity, um, if you look at your email with the bulletin in it, it shows the outline and you'll see the text of the sermon that I'm going to share. Uh, but I would like to point out that if you had a chance to look at that, you may have seen the title of the sermon. And I want to read that to you because I want it to be the lens with which we look at God's Word today. So the title is Discontentment covetousness, and the idol of man. Again, discontentment, covetousness, and the idol of man. You know, last week I preached a very direct sermon on God's calling to all the world, but especially to His people, on human sexuality and all kinds of other sins as well. But we were looking at these things because there is an effort. There are those who are out there who are raging against God in such a way as they want to create their own world, decide for themselves, to set themselves up as gods and displace God's truth for a lie. Last week we talked about the sins of gender confusion and homosexuality. Certainly, I would say this includes also adultery and other areas where we make excuses for our sin. And you say, well, I'm not gender confused. I understand homosexuality is wrong. I know I shouldn't commit adultery or, or fornication. or I, I know about the big ones. That's not my problem. And what I mean is not the sin that I carry. But you see, most people don't wake up one day and simply go from being someone that's following God's word and turning the other direction completely. That's not how that happens. They're sipping a little bit of the truth that is given to them by an idol. Not God's truth, but elsewhere. And so what we need to make sure that we are doing is we are not opening the door to, to ideas that are not from God's Word. And it, like I said, it starts as little things. So today, what causes people to have gender confusion, to think of themselves differently. Let's think about the title again. Discontentment, Covetousness, and the Idol of Man. What happens is, and the truth is, every person in this room, especially the older folks, and I mean teenagers and up, you've woke up one day, and you were discontent about something. 
And if that discontentment grew to a certain level, you desired to be different than who God has made you. We look at others and we begin to say, I want to be like them. We look at ideas and say, I want to be like that. Instead of, I want to be who God has made me to be. Let us consider from God's word, I'm just going to read it as, as a thought, a point of reference. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is quite a list. And this list is truly a list of those that are discontent with what God has provided. Consider this, fornicators, you're discontent that you're not married yet. Idolaters, you're discontent because God has not given you what you wanted. So you make your own choices. Adulterers, you're discontent with your spouse. Homosexuals or sodomites, you're discontent with the sex that God has made you or the way that God said sex is to be. Thieves, discontent with what God has given you. Covetous, discontent with what God has given you. Drunkards, discontent. Revilers, extortioners. All of this is about being discontent with God's sovereignty in your life and in my life. It is truly unlawful covetousness that's going on here. And I simply make that distinction because sometimes we can say a person with ambition, a person who is working hard and diligently, oh, they got to watch out, they're pursuing riches. No, they're pursuing working hard and they have targets and goals and God is blessing them as they seek God. That's not covetousness. There's a difference. And so we're going to be focusing on unlawful covetousness that comes from discontent for God's sovereign place and what he's given you and the temptation not to be make ourselves an idol Rush Dooney in his lecture on the tenth commandment says this but the wicked covetous man the idolater steps outside of this lawful path that is the path of God and seeks by lawless means to remake the life and world that is around him. Think about that. To remake the, li the life and the world that is around him. As a result, he assaults everything that is his neighbor's because he is God in his own eyes, an idolater. He cannot accept the world as it is. He must remake it into his own image. Thus, the covetous man has his system. 
He seeks a state of affairs whereby lawlessness is turned into law. Last week we talked about that, right? Legislation passing in Canada. Ungodly things becoming the law. We talked about how that has made some inroads into our very own state. And he tries to get the results of law by his covetousness. Listen to this now. He wants society to further his lawlessness and yet protect him in it. Hear that now. And just as the political system is the organization and the corruption into the form of political order, so the personal system uses covetousness and lawlessness as a means to a new form of personal, and listen up now, social order. We're trying to use the structures around us. And of course, remember, what has the government said? We are the almighty government, and we will supply all your needs. If you have a problem, turn to us. And so what does the idolater do? They say, OK, I have my own idols, myself, my own desires, my own discontentment, my own covetousness, and I'm going to use this structure, this bigger idol, and I'm going to say, help me out here and set me up so I can be my own idol and protect me. Again, Rush Dooney, to make the world into a term of man's image, and, and the result is moral anarchism and social collapse. Is this looking at all familiar with where we are as a culture? I will say this is from the 1960s. He says this, Now the names for such a system vary. You can call it Nazism, Fascism, Communism, Socialism, or Welfare Economy, Democracy, whatever you want. But the goal is always the same. Under a facade of morality, a system is created whereby man says it is lawful for him to desire and take what is properly his neighbor's. And instead of being regenerated by Christ, he tries to remake the world in terms of his own covetousness. Now, I know that this was a long text to read, but I want this to kind of help us think about this idea of being discontent and how that grows up, that seed of discontentment grows up into covetousness and then how it grows into the idol of self that elevates and then demands that the government recognize my idol of self and must affirm me. And we have to guard ourselves because, again, we don't just start turning our back. It's little steps, one step at a time, one step at a time, one bit of a lie. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us this. Beginning in verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And, be no, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
giving thanks always, I'm going to read that again, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Him. Now when you read this passage, I would say some of this looks a little hazy. It almost looks impossible, okay? In your own strength, in my own strength, it is impossible. That's why we're going to take a look at it and see what God is telling us. First of all, we see this. Number one, the days are evil. See that you walk circumspectly. This word circumspectly means diligently, accurately, exactly. It is to know the truth, whatever the subject may be, and to be diligent in the truth. To be accurate and exact in the way that you walk means that you must study God's Word and you must study the questions of the day. I have Christian daughters that were finishing up their education and part of their daily school assignment is to listen to some Christian news and then I have them go and go through all of the, the headlines in the Washington Post and have them pick out two articles to read. I want them to consider the news from a Christian view and then I want them to see what the headlines are around them. I want them to be engaged and our goal is to try to talk about these things. We don't get to it every day, but we, we work on it. And they share with me, man, look at this and look at that and this is fascinating. Right? And then we have an opportunity to say, okay, what does God's Word say on this? We have to be studying God's Word to know what the problems are around us and then what does God's Word say about it. We need to study it. We need to be together as Christians because just like in Sunday school this morning, we started out on something, we had a very vigorous and great discussion going. It's actually not all resolved. Come back next week and we're going to be talking about it some more. Right? Because we need to be encouraging one another. And I can see something this way, and you can see something that way. And when we talk, and then we say we're going to submit ourselves to what God's Word says together, we are edified. We are learning to walk circumspectly. Because what is the opposite of this? Not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Again, I want to caution us that it's just the little things slipping in. Proverbs 14, 14 through 16 says, The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. If we are going to take God's word, we must submit ourselves to it because the backslider, those that fall into sin, are those that are filled with their own ways. The contrast in this passage goes on to say, but a good man will be satisfied from above. That literally means from above himself. That is to say he is in submission to God. Which we must do. Verse 15 in this passage from Proverbs says, the simple believes every word. Think on that now. How much information is out there and how many people 
simply hear something said on the internet or said in the media or their, their favorite podcast and they just believe every word. They don't put the scrutiny of God's word to it. They don't look for facts. I can't tell you how many times in the last year those who teach unbiblical things at one point or another, it's unbelievable that they would actually say this, but they have repeatedly said the facts don't matter. Only the narrative that they're pushing. It seems absolutely absurd. But again, from this passage in Proverbs, but the prudent considers well his steps. A wise man fears and departs from evil, but a fool rages and is self-confident. Now, here this morning, even in Sunday school, we talked about this a little bit. I just want to, I know not everyone was there. We need to start with an attitude of humility. It's God who has opened up our eyes to see, given us his word and understanding in it so that we may apply it. So we don't want to be a fool that rages and is self-confident in ourselves. No, we want to be prudent and consider our steps because we have submitted ourselves under God's word. And it is his saving grace, not our good works, that has brought us to reconciliation with God and forgiveness of our sins. So be careful. As a Christian, we're called not to rage, but to remember we're under God's word and his grace. Psalm 40 tells us this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear, and will trust in the Lord. Praise and thanksgiving brings contentment and resists covetousness. Listen to this now. Start where you are. Part of the reason you're here is you recognize at some point in your life you were a sinner and you need to be reconciled to God, that you had unresolved guilt and regret and sin in your life. And when you went to the Lord, He was inclined to hear you. He heard your cry and He brought you up out of the horrible pit. Not because you were worthy, but because He chose you, because He loves you. He brought you out of the miry clay, and what did he do? He set your feet from something slippery, the miry clay. Have you ever been in the south after a rain and you've dug a ditch in that clay where the water doesn't really absorb, and you're trying to get up through it? Anybody? Don't try it if you're ever down there, right? It's, it's terrible. You can't get your traction. You can't get your footing. Nothing is solid. And what does he say here? I took you up out of this miry clay and I put you on a rock. Who is the rock of our salvation? Jesus Christ. He, put us, he pulled us out of that pit. We should be humble that he did such a thing. We should be grateful we, that he did such a thing for us. And in that, he established our steps. And from that, he has put a new song in my mouth. 
praise to our God. And what will happen? Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. When we are praising God, when we recognize the place that we were in and we are being thankful and grateful and recognize that, that changes the way we speak to people. And what will happen? Many will see it and fear. Why do they fear? Because God has torn back the veil of darkness from them. And they will trust in the Lord. You see, for you and I, we must look at our circumstances, whatever they may be, and be grateful for the mercies of God, praise Him, and thank Him, no matter what the challenges are in our lives right now. Praise and thankfulness brings contentment and resists covetousness. If you don't want to be that person who's filled with your own ways, praise God. Be thankful. Remember how He pulled you out of the miry clay. This will help you to resist discontent and covetousness. Now He says this about redeeming, redeeming the time. Redeeming is this, a payment of a price to recover from the power of another, to ransom, to buy off. We need to take the time that God has given us and recognize that we, by God's grace, have been recovered from the power of another. We need to make sure our attitude towards others is this way. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, says this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He, has, and he was seen by Cephas, and then the twelve, and after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. So I want you to think about this. I actually had a number of people after last week's sermon come to me and say, how do I interact with someone who's fallen into this confusion, who has succumbed to these lies about themselves. We need to consider this, first of all, that Christ died for our sins. And yes, it is a fact and truth. But he, you see Paul in this passage say, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one bore out, born out of due time. He had a sense of humility. Now this guy had an education like no other of the apostles. He was trained by some of the greatest teachers of the day in the Old Testament. He knew the scriptures, but he raged against God. And when God called him out of his sin, what did he do? He served God. He drew the line. He held firm, but he did it from a sense of humility, which sometimes means you still have to be very direct when you're dealing with people, but you do it with a sense of humility of what God has done for you and I. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 say, Walk in wisdom toward, to, toward 
those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You want to see folks come to know Christ? You want to uh, deal with people and the sin that's in their life that are in your life, in your realm of influence? Humility, prayer, and submission to God. You know, in the book we did in Sunday school, Get Real, there was a passage in there where this young lady's telling this story about how she had a sister who was rebelling against God and didn't want to be trusting to God and didn't believe God. And she was asking the author, John Leonard, like, what, you know, I don't know what to do. And John asked her a very hard question. By your life and your actions, do you demonstrate your belief in God? Do you demonstrate your humility and submission to God? And what did we learn from that passage in Psalms? Right? God lifted us out. And when we submit ourselves to Him, others will see. When we are praising and thanking God for the circumstances and the problems and the difficulties and the limited incomes and the challenges in our marriages, all the things that are going on in your life, oh Lord God, I'm submitting myself to you. You want to see others come to know him, start in humility, pray to God, recognize it is God who is going to change their life. Speak the truth. But the truth is undermined when we don't believe it ourselves. <laughs> Number two, living in God's will. Here comes a hard one, right? When we go back to our passage in Ephesians 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now I can't tell you in my life how many times I've had conversations with people. I don't know what God's will is in my life. I don't know what it is. And I would say, God's word is clear. Do the right thing that's right in front of you. And then the next right thing. We want God to tell us everything, to make the pathway broad and clear. And the truth is, we're so finite and weak, if we knew all of it, we would be overrun with fear. Do the right thing that is right in front of you, and then the next right thing. That is God's will for you. Now, again, God does call us to be prudent, to look ahead, to plan ahead. But you're doing that based off of His Word, Lord willing. You're looking at His Word, and you're saying, okay, here are principles at play. But what is God's will for me right now? Romans 12, verses 1 through 4 helps us answer this question. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Remember, it's God's mercy and grace at work that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and what? perfect will of God. Now this is important. First of all, you need to know that we are in our sins 100% conformed to this world. 
And even when Christ's righteousness, he forgives us and he has clothed us with his righteousness and we are God's children. We have to have our minds transformed. All the things that you've learned in your life are filled with lots of little lies. Some of which, and I said this this morning and this is true always, every effective lie has elements of the truth in it. But anything, folks, people of God, that is a partial lie is all a lie. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We must be trained to see ourselves and the world all around us as God sees it. God's word defines all things. We must be retaught and be looking for those ideas and patterns of thought that are contrary to the word of God and root them out of our lives. And in all of this, we need to be humble, thankful, and grateful. We need to remember this. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Be humble. Be thankful. Be grateful. If you're looking in your outline, the next one says the tentacles in the mouth. And I left it a little ambiguous on purpose, but I want you to think about it this way. Kids, think of, think of this. Listen up now. The kraken of sin. Right? The kraken of sin. If you've ever seen any of these movies where there's this big uh, squid-like thing that comes up and has all these tentacles and it grabs and destroys sailing ships and pulls them down this great beast called the kraken and what is the kraken of sin of course at first you don't see the whole animal you don't see the whole monster you just see little pieces popping up here and there and in some cases in some movies they do it kind of slick the first little tentacle comes up on the deck and grabs one guy and snatches him off. Right? We must guard ourselves and our families against the tentacles that creep into our lives. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. People of God, when small ideas and sin creep in your life and in my life and in the household's that we live in, we must take God's word, that sword, and cut it off and cast it out. Don't let it slip in. Because when it is full grown, that cracking comes up in those movies, and it's an ugly monster with a big mouth, and it destroys and eats 
everything. Think again. Then when each desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, it forms death. Goes on, the scriptures go on and say this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he brought us light, and he does not have any variation or shadows of turning. But by his word of truth, he brought us forth. Here's a good question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves right now. Are you discontent with God's providences in your life? With your spouse, your children, your work, your belongings, your health, your position? Your place in time and history. By that I mean some people wish if they just lived in a different time, either behind us or ahead of us, things would be better. Your status in marriage or your status with children. These are the tentacles that will grab you and will bear the sin of fraudulent covetousness. And you will look for ways to take these things in before God gives them to you. We actually talked about that in Sunday school this morning too. And that is to say, when you look at so many of the problems that were going on in the Old Testament, it's where from Adam and Eve in the garden, seizing the fruit before it was time, to Abraham doing what? Seizing God's slow in his promises, I'm going to grab another woman, and I'm going to start another line. We're still suffering consequences of that. The turmoil in the Middle East, and we see it over and over again played out in the lives of the saints before us. Listen, we have to guard ourselves from taking things that don't belong to us before God gives them to us. In our thoughts, and yes, even sometimes in our actions. Because we know the big things, right? If I commit adultery and I go and I find another woman and, and do all the things relative to that, we know that's the big one. But in your thoughts? Or how about this? It isn't even about sexuality sometimes. Sometimes we say, I wish my husband were more like that guy. You're coveting someone else. Or I wish my wife kept the house as clean as that wife. We covet in all kinds of ways. Here's another warning from Rushton. It says this, In evil covetousness, a man takes a lawless course and redefines it as a justifiable one. Man has always been prone to justify his every act. And if you don't think that's true, you're not paying attention to your kids when you correct them right? They always have an explanation. Sometimes it's childlike irresponsibility, right? They're just ignorant. They don't know, right? Other times, though, 
They're working hard to justify their actions. Man has always been prone to justify his every act. Justification is a necessary cover for man, so that man is always trying to justify himself in whatever he does. But the Tenth Commandment puts its finger on a particular aspect of man's sin, that particular form whereby he takes that which is properly his neighbor's and then vindicates it as a way of life, justifies it, makes his will into righteousness, and therefore worship and exalts his will as though it were the will of God. Be very careful. This again, isolation puts us in that peril. When we're not with other people to see us how we interact with our spouses and our children or to talk to them about our life issues, right? When we isolate ourselves, we're in a place where we can't see things and we're going to be drawn into covetousness in every way. And we will make and justify and create a false idolatry to say that our will is the will of God. So here's the question. What is the remedy and preventative measure? I almost wanted to see, say, the vaccine, but I thought that that might be too much today. The answer to that question is giving thanks. Is the remedy and preventative measure? Ephesians 5.18, And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Which, by the way, that word dissipation, that means an abandoned, dissolute life. That is lacking moral constraints. The nerves unstrung, weak, and reckless. So we are not to live our life in a way that is just abandonment. It's all fatalism. No, we have to walk in thankfulness to God. It goes on and says, I, I, it, you know, when you think about this dissipation, this dissolute life, lacking in moral constraint, being that our nerves are unstrung or, or we're just a nervous wreck, being reckless, it really says this, because all these things are going on, I'm going to deal with it. In this case, the illustration is being drunk. But you can do all kinds of things. You can grasp hold of making things an idol and say, I am my own God and determine all things for myself. But the contrast here in Ephesians 5 is, but be filled, that is to be full and complete, content and supplied with the Spirit, speaking, that is telling, talking, preaching, singing, to one another in what? Psalms, which is to strike a chord of God. And hymns. I thought this was interesting. When you look at this Greek word hymn, it's a song in tithe. It is what it is that we owe God. So first, we are to sing to one another striking a chord and singing and being glorious and thankful to God for all that He has done being supplied and content in what he's done, and then we give him what he is due in tithe, in spiritual songs, and that's odes and chants. Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Uh, 
people of God, that, that last line, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, has anyone ever read that and said, this is an impossible situation? My circumstances are too hard. They're too much for me. Yes, in fact, God does put hard things in our life and trials and difficulties, but we should remember that when we are weak, He is strong. I'll recommend a book to you if you really want to think about how to give thanks in much difficulty. Twelve Years a Slave. Forget the movie. Garbage. Read the book written by the man Solomon Northrup himself who underwent this difficult time. And it is amazing. This book was written by himself, by his own hand. It is amazing that in all the difficulties and turmoils of slavery and challenges that he had, that the whole time, and even in his reflections afterward, he didn't hold on to bitterness, but he was always in submitting himself to God in this difficult time. It's one of my favorite books. It is important that as we consider being thankful, that he told us what to do, to sing to one another, to encourage one another, give to God what is owed him. It's interesting because the very last line in that says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And of course, you know what comes after this passage. There's all these instructions about families and other relationships in the community about how we should act. So he gives more instruction there. Finally, contentment and rest. How are we going to do this? People are looking for happiness in their pursuits. And I say happiness with quotations. In their pursuits, they disregard God and choose their own paths, finding them lacking. They find themselves discontented and coveting. Instead, we need the joy of the Lord in all things. The modern view of happiness is not joy. James 1 says this, beginning in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You should, in fact, count this trial as joy. God in His providence has exposed sins in our life. Why does He do that? Because He loves us. We are his children. The word joy really means calmness and delight. Consider when sin is brought to us. Psalm 51, verse 11. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold your generous spirit. It is really important that we recognize that it is the joy of God's salvation. Not our joy. We're not asking God to restore our joy. But our joy comes from God. In closing, we need to remember the redemption of Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And that is from Ephesians 1. So think about that. That was the lens that brings us to Ephesians 5. God chose us when we 
do not joyfully submit to his word, we find ourselves in discontent, which grows to covetousness, and when it is full grown to idolatry, justifying ourselves through our own definitions of moral living. Let us pray. O oh God, our Father, your word in Psalm 19 teaches us to consider and pray. Who can understand his errors? Lord God, let us understand our errors. Cleanse us from our secret faults. Keep back, we, your servants, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then we shall be blameless, and we shall be innocent of a great transgressions. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and redeemer. Amen.